Okay. So about 45, 46 days into boat ownership, I'm going to go over some uh, safety things with you guys. Great. So under this seat, which comes up, there's more life jackets. There's two right here as well. Uh, these will be easily accessible. Those are under the chair. Under that chair uh, or this seat cushion is an anchor in case we need to stop uh, or anchor up. But, you know, there's no brakes on boats, so the anchor is your brake. It's a small boat, so we'll be very careful. Uh, if you do fall into the water, stay where you are. I'll bring the boat back to you. If you feel more comfortable, you can wear the life jacket the whole time uh, or you could just put it on if we need it. Um, radio channel 16 is the Coast Guard. Other than that, I guess I'll be your captain for today. Welcome to Wild Talk. 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 Let's head outside. Dr. Sandeep Kapoor is a physician, a teacher, and a healthcare innovator. As the Associate Vice President of Addiction Services for Northwell Health, he is on the front lines of the fight against opioid addiction at a time where substance use and abuse is on the rise. Dr. Kapoor has taken a different approach to this fight than many others. He's starting with words. He trains clinicians on the power of language, how the terms we use around addiction can reinforce the shame and silence that keep people from seeking care or can open up new conversations that destigmatize substance abuse. Though we work for the same organization, I first met Dr. Kapoor in Austin, Texas, where I saw him speak at the South by Southwest Festival. His passion for this work and clear-eyed critique of the role shame and stigma play in fueling the opioid crisis earned him a standing ovation from the crowd. We reached out to Dr. Kapoor because he is working on a new frontier of medicine, one that requires an awareness of the cultures and communities in which our patients live. We were also pretty excited to venture outside with Dr. Kapoor because in the stir-craziness of coronavirus, he and his family had got a modest motorboat as a way of escaping the claustrophobia of quarantine. Should we go on the boat? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Should I tell you the name of the boat? Please. It's called On the Lamb. Anyone know what that reference, what that means? Well, I I was curious about, is it like a witness protection program? Yeah, kind of, right? So, you know, if you watch The Sopranos, when they're like, oh, Paulie's on the lamb, that means he's he's escaping. He's hiding out. And the reason why I got this, I was just telling Emily, is, you know, work has been kind of burning me out of it. So uh, this has been my escape for the last 45, 46 days. Uh, And so we named it On the Lamb. Nice. Yeah. I like it. All right, I'm going to start up the engine. I hope it's gonna, not going to be too loud on your ear, but it will be loud for a second. So we went to this very cool little town called Seacliff, and there is a harbor right there. Uh, this is on the northern shore of Long Island, past the border of Queens and, and uh, kind of along that northern edge. Um, and there's all these beautiful little uh, harbor towns um, that have these lovely bays that are, you know, fishing villages right there. And because it sort of runs up the length of Long Island, you can literally look out back across the water and you can see the Manhattan skyline, you can see Harlem, you can see Jersey, you can see Connecticut. Uh, so it's this really interesting view of the city that people don't often get, right? Because oftentimes, if you're moving through the city, you're on highways, um, but the water is, is literally, it's right there. You f- it's easy to forget uh, 
how close the waterfront is to pretty much every single point uh, in Manhattan and the Bronx and Harlem and Queens, etc. Mm-hmm. Right? Not just the island of Manhattan, but Governor's Island, City Island, um, Roosevelt Island. Uh, they're all clustered so close together, and these bridges are, are really the, the arteries in between them. The other reminder was, you know, we, we sort of drove out on Long Island, we got on this boat, and suddenly we were on the water, and, um, you know, it was, it was sort of like minutes before we were someplace that looked completely transformed, right? right. Like, it, it was not like we had to travel for, you know, hours to, to get to a place that was almost unrecognizable to us um, as, as New York City. And it was peaceful, and there were seabirds and beach, and yeah. There's very, I don't know if there's very many places where you can go that short of a distance and find something you've never seen before, right? Yeah. I've been looking at the New York skyline my whole life, but never from that direct angle, and also never from a small boat that's moving around. I've been a terrestrial viewer of the, of the city, and so that was also um, interesting and felt just being in a very different space. Being out on the boat, not only are we seeing the city we know so well from a literally a new angle, but I was also struck by uh, the ability to take in the multiplicity of the city in one view, right? Mm-hmm. You could be on this boat and see these gorgeous, gorgeous mansions. You could also see housing projects. You could see family homes. You could see industrial areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could, and you could see skyscrapers, right? You could see everything in between. Um, and there's, uh, it was fascinating to be out on the water and in you know, just a, a rotation of your head left to right, be able to take in all of these versions of, of New York, all of these versions of this, of this city um, in, in a glance. And the water really afforded you that kind of view. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I have never seen water this flat in my life. This was meant to be. So we're pretty much in, like, almost in Long Island Sound, and there isn't a wave to be seen, which is nuts. <laughs> I'm shocked. You see the lighthouse in front of us? Yeah. The white one? So that's called Executioner's uh, Execution Island or ex- Execution Rocks. And the, there's a myth uh, there or a story, a legend, that they used to tie people up to the rocks and wait for high tide to come in. So actually on Google Maps, it's called Execution Rocks. And that's what I wanted to show you. There's the New York skyline right there. It's so easy to forget how close everything is. I mean, it's and not... it's really just an archipelago. It's like it. this collection of islands that we never treat as islands. How about here? This is good? It's perfect. Yeah, let's just chill. The sun's coming out a little bit, too. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, you can see the skyline here and both bridges. Isn't that cool? All right, let's We're in a totally different zone space completely different you guys were just on the highway what like 20 minutes ago yeah so nice and quiet out here too yeah right what's special about being out on the water for you and this place you brought us to i think we're feeling right now this calmness right like uh even though there's people living there on their wi-fi doing work uh it feels like you're in a, a different world right now 
Uh, you know, see the horizon, which is pretty cool. You can't really see that from home or working in a basement. Uh, it's just like freedom a bit. And, and you know, that's kind of why I got the boat. It was to free myself a little bit of, of the tensions of real life. The biggest, I think, stressor was being at home, but not being present. You know, so like I have two little kids and we're all in the same location as back in the day I would go to work and I would be away from the house. So like there were boundaries, right? Like I'm away from home, I'm away from home. Now being around everybody forced to do as much as they can remotely, uh, I felt like I was cheating them of their childhood a bit because when it first started, um, I set up shop in my dining room. And all I was doing was hushing them every five minutes saying, hey, listen, you got to keep quiet. And I realized very quickly it's so unfair to them being, you know, nine and six years old that they have to like walk on eggshells in their own house, especially because they also have this big trauma of not being in school. So I found like the furthest corner of my basement set up shop and I thought that would do it. But then I realized that even when they came to talk to me or if I was upstairs, my mind was always downstairs, even though physically I was there. Um, so I think all that added up, everything combined together and trying to figure out how do I navigate work and family and this new normal that we're living in. Um, yeah, so I, I had to figure something out. So I, 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 I'm not going to lie. I came to a breaking point, which was like I had to decide to do something different. Like, you know, all of our vacations were canceled. All of the, like this family time that we would have had if I was, was going to work. And then coming home, and that was home time, all that was dissipated. It was all gone, like in a moment's no- without a moment's notice. So um, I was at a, at a decision point, and the decision was, we're going to do something, and hence where we are right now on a boat. <laughs> and look, all of us, we turn to something, right? In times of crisis, or just to cope, even if it's not like crisis level, we all turn to something. It may be food, it may be alcohol, drugs, tobacco, boating, you know, like other hobbies. And um, just a few other data, alcohol sales is up like 45 to 65% in this country. To me, it's even more important that we talk about substance use now because what else are we left with, right? We're socially distancing, we're isolating ourselves, we're feeling alone, both at work as well as at home. There's all these different crises happening at the same time. If we don't talk about substance use, especially in a humanistic way, we're gonna, we're gonna lose people, right? People are going to unfortunately fall into substance use disorder. Um, we already see an increase in overdoses, drug-related overdoses throughout this country, especially in our region. Um, we need to have open conversations and say there's other pathways towards coping, there's other pathways towards handling situations that come up in life. What does that mean to have a humanistic conversation about substances versus you know some other way we might be approaching that? Um, great question. Let's reflect back to our dinner tables for a moment. Growing up, how many times have we really talked about drug or alcohol use in a non-judgmental way, right? Then we all come to work as healthcare professionals, as contractors, as a bus driver, whatever our profession is, and instantly we were supposed to like care about people. Like, I remember having conversations when I was younger, and it was always about quote unquote like that drunk uncle, right, or it was that kid down the street. You know, like it was never really about like a conversation that was on the table, it was hidden under the table about what was going on in that immediate family. I would say when you come and work 
particularly as a healthcare professional, you put on an ID, it doesn't instantly make you like the superhero, right? You have to understand we bring whatever we were brought, we were raised with to the table when we're working. So if we're bringing these hidden conversations that no one's ever talked about, and now we're saying we're going to help someone that's dealing with a substance use issue, how are we equipped to do so? The way we do it is in that same judgmental way. We shame people because they do cocaine or because they're using heroin, as opposed to understanding the suffrage that they may be dealing with, which is driving why they're using the cocaine or the heroin. And same with alcohol. Like We bring this level of impatience to the equation, like not my problem, but we don't do the same when someone's struggling with their diabetes or someone's struggling with heart disease. Like We've been trained to look at somebody and be like, hey, it's not your fault. It's genetic, hypertension, there's medications for you, there's all these different options. But when it comes to substance use, we've never really been educated other than those conversations around our dinner table. Uh, medical education has unfortunately not prepared us to, to talk or to uh, compassion, you know, be compassionate towards people dealing with substance use issues. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say when being humanistic is really not forgetting that's an individual. They have their own life. We need to meet them where they're at before we step back and be like, oh, no, you know, you're a drug addict or you're an alcoholic. Because that's, those are the words that we use left and right in society and around our dinner tables. This instinct that we have as a social species say, you're either in, belong to the, this tribe, this group of people, and we protect each other, or you're the other. And when you're the other, there's no space for it. It's hard to conjure compassion. It's hard to, you know, okay, those are addicts. That's not me. That's not us. There was a quote that I found that I wanted to sort of form a question up that uh, Gabor Mate uh, wrote a book in the realm of the hungry ghosts. And there is this quote, um, ghost is the domain of addiction where we constantly seek something something outside ourselves to curb an insatiable yearning for relief or fulfillment. The aching emptiness is perpetual because the substances, objects, or pursuits we hope will soothe it are not what we really need. We haunt our lives without being fully present. In our materialist society, with our attachment to ego gratification, few of us escape the lure of addictive behaviors. Only our blindness and self-flattery stand in the way of seeing that the severely addicted people are people who have suffered more than the rest of us, but who share a profound commonality with the majority of, quote, respectable citizens. So I asked Sandeep, is there a soul sickness in this culture driving addictive behavior across the board, phones, food, porn, etc.? I mean, I, there's a couple of words in that in that quote. I, I never heard that quote before, but it's really interesting because even when I speak, I use a couple of those words. And I think the, the, the one that has struck me the most from that quote is commonalities. So if we already check out on people because they're dealing with alcohol and drug issues, how are we ever really going to understand why they're dealing with it or what brought them to that state of mind or that state uh, that they're currently in? Because there's always more to the story. Right? Do we take the time to find out that story? So you're saying almost that addiction is it can almost be a symptom, and there's some underlying conditions that need to be addressed, can be systemically addressed. I, uh, yeah, agreed. I think I think that uh, any kind of addiction, right? It be it the phone, um, be it uh, the computer or substances or food, those may be the manifestation of uh, a different issue, right? 
but in its right state, it also could be its own issue, right? So not everyone has this deep-rooted trauma that they may be coping for. Some folks may just have a substance use disorder, um, as opposed to many others, and probably the majority of us, have had some sort of trauma that's affected us that we're trying to find our way through to live a, a happy life. So when you think about you know, the words that struck you here, and then you were also mentioning some of the words that, that we use, like addicts and things like that, um, you know, I've, I've heard you talk often about how powerful those words can be one way or the other, right, mm-hmm. to, to sort of work against us or, or work for us. Tell me about the words that you, you wish we could just get rid of, that you wish we would just stop using. Um, so I'll give you an example. My mom um, had breast cancer. Uh, she's doing great now, but she had breast cancer, and that's a big deal. I never heard anyone ever call her carcinogenic, right? No one ever called her by the disease that she had or the disease she was dealing with. There's similar similar ways of how we're trying in this industry not to call patients diabetics, right? They're a lot more than the diabetes they may be dealing with, right? So it's Mrs. Smith with diabetes as opposed to that's a diabetic. Now, you look at the word addict. If I was someone dealing with addiction and I'm calling myself an addict, that's my, that's my privilege. But if I'm a healthcare professional and I'm going to call that patient or that individual or that person's family member an addict, I need to check myself. Like, why am I calling them by the disease process like carcinogenic? Why am I, why am I calling them that when literally that's Mrs. Smith dealing with a substance use disorder? Same with alcoholic. You know, you hear people say, I'm an alcoholic. That is their privilege. It's another thing for someone else to call them an alcoholic, right? There's shame, there's stigma. So I, I, I do think that words matter. And the words that we choose can make or break someone's trajectory, right? If we were to come to somebody that was in dire need of help and we're using framing that is harmful, then how are we ever going to build partnership with that person? Do you see that happening in... You know, just in, in in political settings where where that that word is written at you know addicts somewhere in a chart and it's changing the way someone's approaching um, patients. Oh yeah, I mean, look, we know very well there's no shortage of biases, right? Like you read a name that may be foreign, you need, read um, a, a disease process that may be unknown or known to be like infectious. Like even COVID is a great example, right? The words that we use can, again, really change the trajectory of someone's care, not the care that we give them, but even downstream, right? Uh, you know, there are diagnosis codes like alcohol intoxication. What does that do downstream? When everybody else sees that, do they already check off like, this person is not worth it to me. Like, are they saying that? Are they thinking of their uncle or their aunt or their mother that no one ever talked about because it was, it was you know, bad, very bad? Is that going to affect how they're going to treat Mr. Smith now? And I, I believe it does, by far. And that's why I think, like, even the simplest changes, you don't need to be trained in treating addiction. You don't need to be a doctor or a nurse. Even if we just change our vocabulary, that is... That is to me, very innovative in the sense that it could change the whole landscape of how people are treated. So, so you've been putting some of these programs into place, both with um, with your team and also at the, at the medical school. Could you could you tell us about each of those programs a little bit? Sure. So I've had the privilege of, over the last seven years, trying to motivate 72,000 fellow colleagues at the largest health system in New York State to reframe the conversation. Not to look at substance use as abuse and addiction, but look at it as substance use, right? Look at it from the most 
broad perspective, understanding that alcohol and drugs and tobacco can affect your health. And that's how simple of a message it is, right? Look at it as a healthcare issue, as opposed to keep looking at it like our dinner tables, which is a moral failing. And in turn, getting the same scientific evidence-based minds that treat every other disease to now focus over here and be like, oh, wait, healthcare issue? I'm a healthcare provider. I could do something about that. So it's, it's shaped into universal screening. So we're giving every patient an opportunity to talk to us about how alcohol and drugs affect their life. It's turned into interventions on site, talking to someone using motivational interviewing to understand what consequences they're dealing with. And if they're willing to make a change, how do we partner with them? It's come down to creating networks of treatment and care uh, so that patients aren't left trying to figure out who's going to help them. We're going to connect them to care. We're going to follow up with them and make sure that they're doing well. It's about educating people, especially now more than ever, about opioid overdoses and how to prevent every single one of those by using a rescue medication called naloxone and actually giving it out free of charge into the individual's hands so they have it on call whenever they need it. It's also in the form of education. So if you look at our School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell, five years ago, six years ago, we had a two-hour footprint around alcohol use in a four-year curriculum. Fast forward to today, we have close to a 30-hour curriculum that our team put together, which includes like experiential kind of uh, events where they go out to addiction treatment and see how people are being treated and what kind of science is being utilized. There's role-playing with standardized patients on communication skills, understanding words of partnership, words of affirmation so that you could have a conversation with someone as opposed to shutting it down. Um, you know, uh, continuing education for our physicians, our nurses, our ACPs, as well as we've flipped some of this education out to the community. Um, a lot of what we talk about, 90% of what we talk about, you don't need a medical degree to understand. So we use the same exact slides and the same exact conversation with what we would call laymen in this, in this industry, folks that aren't healthcare professionals, and they get it. So can you just stack that against that, that investment in professional development uh, against the scale of the epidemic? I mean, just what does it look like at a national scale? To me, we're light years behind because we've lost way too many people in this country to substance use related deaths that potentially could have been prevented. The same way we're seeing um, more diagnoses of diabetes or heart disease early on in life, that's because we screen. We've been screening for these disease processes for years. We've been intervening for these disease processes from pediatrics to geriatrics. Like we have made it a point to stop the progression of these big diseases. Otherwise, we would be in an epidemic of heart disease. We would have people dying of heart attacks left and right if we never started taking their blood pressure, putting EKG machines in every mall and every every single public setting there is. We need naloxone in every single mall and every single public setting as well. We, we've lost people in parking lots of hospitals to overdoses, of libraries, in bathrooms in libraries. I mean, you name it, this is all somewhat preventable. We need to accelerate our process. Mm-hmm. Developing standardized tools. Just the same playbook that you bring to other pathologies. Yeah, I, that's the beauty of it. And I love how, how you're getting it. And I'm assuming that you're not a doctor, you're not a nurse. Uh, that's just I my assumption. I play one on TV. But... Uh, there we go. So I'll tell you right now, the way you just got that is exactly the aha moment we want 72,000 uh, fellow employees as well as the rest of this industry to get. It is not different. There's a journey here. 
when it comes to substance use and substance use disorder, if we interact in a compassionate way early enough, we can prevent the trajectory of that journey. We could realign somebody back towards well-being or recovery. But we just need to come up to this understanding that if I take someone's blood pressure, it's because I'm screening them for, for heart disease. If I ask somebody questions about how alcohol and drugs are affecting their life, it's screening them to understand where they're at on the spectrum of substance use disorder. Right, and understand the comorbidities in the relationships. Absolutely. Don't stop there, right? Understand there may be some behavioral health issues. There may be other traumas. I mean, all of us have had trauma in our lives. We deal with it differently. We need to be compassionate in how people deal with it. Mm-hmm. And just for the sake of people, I don't think people understand the statistical in, you know, breadth of the problem. 40 million people over the age of 12 in this country have a substance use disorder. So theoretically, that's one in seven people in this country. And when you compare that to three other big disease processes like heart disease, uh, diabetes, and cancer, those are hovering around 30 million. We're talking about 40 million people dealing with the disease. And now let's go back to that med school, those med school days. Four hours of education for 40 million people versus my nine-year-old can talk to you about heart disease and diabetes at this point because they talk about nutrition. They talk about blood pressure. They understand that you know their grandma may be dealing with something because it's mainstream. This has been falling. It's the elephant in the room. It's the elephant in the room supported by an inadequate framework of education. You know, when it comes to substance use disorder as a country, privilege has played a really big part in it. You know, like I I speak a lot about the opioid epidemic, the current state of the opioid epidemic. The opioid epidemic has been around for many, many, many years before it's become mainstream in my generation. It's been in low social economic status environments, communities of color for years and years and years. And as a federal government, as a state government, even as society, we've done very little about it. You know, now there's millions and millions of dollars being pumped in for research and for treatment and for navigation. But where was that before when we were losing fellow mankind, uh, you know, to a disease process that was always a disease process? You know, it it always should have been approached with compassion and not stigma. Right. If we could talk about hemorrhoids, we could talk about, you know, sexually transmitted infections. If we could talk about, uh, you know, gynecological issues. Why can't we just talk about alcohol and drugs without it becoming controversial, stigmatizing, judgmental? But we have to understand that there's two parts to the equation, right? We need to bring a welcoming approach so that our patients and our communities will feel comfortable with us. And I think that's 99% of this is all about communication and comfort. If we can build an environment that's trusting and comfortable, people will talk to us about it. But if we're not willing to do that, then we're going to continue to suffer from this epidemic and these pandemics left and right and lose many people to a disease that we really don't need to lose them to. We could prevent that progression. So I think it's really just to get people to understand this from a lens of compassion, a lens of justice, a lens of empathy, that we could do so many powerful things with even the smallest you know, acts. So compassion and empathy and justice are, are good medicine. I would want someone who's treating me or my mom or my dad 
with those three elements by far. What's compelling too is how you seem to be marrying that, and it's not just just about heart. It's not just about empathy, but let's also bring evidence-based practices. You know, clinically validated instrumentation. You know, uh, and it's it's where those things meet. I think it sounds like there's the power is. Yeah, and and then look, take that, Jay. Take that and bring it to a group of healthcare professionals that already understand everything you just said. All we need them to do is to superimpose that onto this disease process. You don't need to be, uh, you know, this this board certified addiction uh, psychiatry or addiction medicine, you know, certified person. That care or treatment can start with your front desk team member that answers the phone and doesn't treat that person like crap. Right? I mean, that could be the whole difference. It could be from your medical office assistants or your primary nurse that's helping you in an emergency department not being rude to you because you say you drink or do drugs or you came in because you just overdosed. That in itself is probably the most important touch point, not the downstream specialty care. That's all very important and we need to get people there. But how are we going to get someone there if we can't even welcome them? It's like inviting someone to our house and having a bouncer at the door. And if you're dealing with substance use issue, you got to bounce. Right. Everybody else, oh, heart disease, come on in. Diabetes, yeah, yeah, come on. Oh, you got the VIP table. Right. Oh, no, sorry. You go sit in the corner. Right, you, because you're a failed human being. You have a scarlet letter on you that's superimposed by us because of those conversations around our dinner table. Literally. It's not because we learned in medical school that people who use alcohol or drugs are bad. We just didn't learn anything. Other than maybe hanging out at the bar after with our friends and seeing things. That's where we got our, our evidence. Our evidence was like, oh, no, I know how my uncle drinks. He's a bad dude. Like, that's not science. That's not evidence. That's our social primers that we bring to the table. We need to encourage people to put those aside. And that messaging that it's something that you've done to yourself, that you have made bad choices or you're a weak human being, or whatever that messaging is, is so in and of itself debilitating and perpetuating of the of the disease um, yes and if you speak to folks that are in recovery or folks that are dealing with substance use issues or folks that are dealing with eating disorders or folks that are dealing with smoking issues whatever it is there's enough shame to go around already right, right? there's already enough like lack of self-confidence there's already enough of that there who are we how is it our right as healthcare professionals to add to that. Right. It'd be like pouring salt on the wound. Yeah. yeah. I mean, why would we want to make it worse as opposed to capitalizing on all this science that we know and try to make it better? You even took that science and built an app to help people do it, right? <laughs> we, did. we did. Yeah. We built an app to help educate other healthcare professionals to show them that it's so simple. That using evidence-based screening tools, the same way like a blood pressure is, or the same way you ask somebody about domestic violence, there's tons of different screening tools that are out there that are evidence-based. All we're trying to do is teach people to use the same skill set for substance use. And better yet, we created an app that they could use with a patient face-to-face and walk through the whole process, understanding about what their goals in life are or what their goals are in terms of their alcohol use. Could it be cutting down? Could it be saving money? Could it be having a better relationship with their family? It's like a menu of behavioral options they choose from. And then after this thoughtful conversation between patient, a healthcare uh, professional, and this app, it comes out with the summary 
a summary of what the patient wants to do, as opposed to us saying, you need to stop drinking, the patient has come up with their own motivation and their more own understanding on paper of why they would contemplate making a change. And that change doesn't need to be stop drinking. The change could be, hey, I'll drink one less beer a day. Like whatever it is, it's better, it's probably better than current state. You know, like even the smallest acts of change or the smallest acts could be exponential in that trajectory of that person's life. It's intrinsic. It's gotta be intrinsic. You'll push somebody, they'll do what you want, but it doesn't mean they wanted to do it or they did it for the right reason. How do you spark that internal generator of somebody? And the way you usually do that is by talking to someone. What's important to somebody? And if it's important to them, is it important enough to them to think about maybe I should go to the gym? You know, maybe so I can play with my kids, right? So you may have someone dealing with, let's say, obesity that starts suffering because he can't keep up with his kids when they're playing soccer and it's hurting them. Maybe that's the reason why that person's gonna go to the gym. Not because their wife is saying go to the gym or their doctor is saying, hey, you need to lose weight. That's not what's gonna drive people. It may, it may drive them. But you, we need to, as human beings, figure out how to facilitate, not drive. We don't want to push people. We need to be by their side and say, I'm right by your side. No matter what you decide, I'm still going to be by your side. Mm. That's compassion, peace. It, and, then, and then you'd no longer have the divide between you. Right. So, so if your goal is just to perhaps drink less or, or you know, maybe not smoke on on work days or whatever, um, that doesn't mean you somehow failed the doctor's goal. Well, that's the thing, right? Like we we are very keen on driving our agendas as human beings, right? We want our kids to clean their room. We want them to be back by curfew. We want them to read X amount of time. These are all directions. Like we're being very directive with our kids. And what 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 usually happens? It ends up in an argument, a tantrum, a fight. We're frustrated. They're frustrated. If you could figure out a way, which I'm still trying to figure out, but if you could figure out a way where your kids like reading, they're gonna read. If they find the adventure in the book that they're reading, like I wasn't one of these kids. I did not like reading. And all I was being told and yelled at was to read. It did not make it any easier for me. So I think if we look at just the way we were treated as children and what worked with us and what didn't, why can't we put that and superpose that into our approach with other human beings? Like no one wants to be scolded or yelled at or shamed or given ultimatums. Like we shut down. We, we completely shut down. And one analogy is, and I, I ask a room full of people, and it's my favorite question to ask, uh, is how many people drink coffee? And everybody raises their hand, right? And it's usually like a morning, right? So everyone's like, you know, needs their coffee at that point. And then I say, okay, great. What if I were to tell you tomorrow, never drink coffee again? How many of you guys would be successful? And like all the hands go down. I'm like, look, if you can understand that, then you should understand what people dealing with alcohol, drugs, tobacco, food, whatever issue they're dealing with, you need to understand by you telling them to stop, their hand is gonna go down just like your hand just went down, right? I'm, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I know if my colleagues don't have coffee, forget it. It's over, dude. Like, it's like war. And all these people, they're admitting, they put their hands down. They're like, no way, that's impossible. So if we can understand that, then how are we still telling people what to do? And, and if you don't, if they don't wanna do it, you gotta meet them where they're at. It's okay. That sounds like a really radically different approach to a doctor-patient relationship than I think a lot of 
clinical encounter sort of set up in terms of a paradigm? I mean, what's been the response from your colleagues in, in trying to ask them to sort of shift and work in this different kind of way? So here's the beauty of it, right? It, it's not just one person saying this. There's a, there is a paradigm shift happening in terms of communications and how important communications is part of being a healthcare professional. And it's not just docs, right? Nurses, social workers, you name it, all of us can benefit from training and education and practice and hopefully mastery in communication, right? If we can understand the basics of how to empathize with somebody, how to convey to them with our words that we understand them, as opposed to the, the fail-safe of what this industry was like, which is, I'm going to tell you what's good for you. And people would come to physicians and nurses and doctors and, and whoever else and ask, what should I do? But again, that's that pushing mechanism, right? Well, we it's could, literally prescription. Yeah, literally. It's literally prescription. Wow. <laughs> Jay, man. Like, what are you, a wordsmith? What's going on here? You got Webster on this boat over here. This is amazing. Dude, absolutely. It's yes, it's prescribing as opposed to co-constructing. Inspiring. Yeah. Oh, man. Jay, dude. Sorry, bring this guy around. <laughs> that's a, that's a, I get paid by the word. Yes. Wow, prescribing versus inspiring. I'm not going to write you a prescription. I'm going to write you an inspiration. Wow. Better yet, let's both let's write it together. Let's write it let's together. Create let's co create an inspiration and then hold each other accountable in a supportive way. Yes. You were recently um, given a grant to start to look at taking some of these. Um, same techniques around asking questions and, and, and taking a clinical approach to, to substance abuse into the realm of, of gun violence and treating gun violence like a health issue. Talk, talk to me about that. Ah, that was an interesting thing. Yeah, so we recently received uh, a $1.4 million grant from the National Institute of Health, so the feds, uh, to research uh, if a universal screening process, intervening process, as well as referral to resources, the exact same model that we built for substance use, if we could apply that to help in the pandemic of gun violence. Um, so theoretically, looking at yet another societal issue and reframing it as a healthcare issue. And in doing so, can we build championship amongst this industry to say, wait a second, healthcare professional, healthcare issue, I could do something about this. You know, the majority of deaths with guns is not what we think, right? It's not the mass shootings. Those are horrible. It's incidental, accidental, right? Folks who own guns, it's fine to own a gun. It's our right in this country to own a gun. The question is, are we educated on safe storage, on safe utilization? Do we understand the risk our children or their play dates that come over are at if there are firearms in the household? These are the kind of conversations we want to have in a healthcare setting the same way we used to talk about car seats and continue to talk about car seats. Car seats weren't a thing until it became a healthcare issue. Until people start seeing children dying in car accidents, all of a sudden, physicians, nurses, NPs, midwives, you name it, start talking about the importance of car seats. To now, at our children's hospital, or any hospital that, that delivers babies, they'll come downstairs into the parking lot and help you put in a car seat properly in your car so that beautiful life that you brought into this world is safe. So we're trying to take that and now superimpose ESPERT into firearm injury and mortality prevention. ESPERT, can you define that for us? Sorry, screening? brief intervention and referral to treatment. 
So let's look at cardiovascular disease. It is taking someone's blood pressure, screening. It's talking about diet or nutrition or just uh, or medication. That would be your brief intervention. And if you need to get that patient to, let's say, a cardiologist or start treatment, that's your referral piece. So Esbert's been around for almost any other chronic condition. We now know it really for substance use in our health system. It's screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. If we apply that now to gun violence prevention and we ask a couple of thoughtful questions of access to firearms, we could understand if that patient's at risk of potential firearm injury. And at that point, we can have a discussion with them about what's available. Gun safety locks. It's a $15 device. You just put it over the trigger and lock it. It keeps everybody that doesn't have that key safe. Safe storage using a gun safe as opposed to keeping it in your uh, bedroom side table. I mean, simple things like this. Or in the height of COVID, we've seen in this country gun sales on the rise. So now we may have a whole new society that has a new gun ownership that really don't understand what that weapon can do and how to keep it safe. We're not saying destroy the weapon. We're not saying get rid of it. It's all about prevention of preventable injuries. Yeah, we're not saying get rid of your car. We're saying... Put up, buckle your seatbelt and get your kids in the Make it seat. safer. Make it safer. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't care if you own a gun or not, and nor should we. What we should care about is if you do own a gun or have access to a gun, that there's certain safety measures in place. I know what measures should be in place for a boat, and how did I learn that? When I got a boat, I did safety courses. So there's, there, there is some sensibility behind standing up a program like this now because we know that our communities are flooded with guns now because the sales have skyrocketed during COVID. So um, one of the other things we like to ask everyone we interview is to take us far afield. Take us to something that you're passionate about, that's a hobby, that's an interest, that could be just a recent obsession or Wikipedia death spiral that you've been on um, that is not necessarily directly in the line of your work. Uh, And tell us a little bit about it. Ah, uh, so a hobby. Um, you know, I think uh, one thing, and going back to that quote from before about commonalities, um, you know, there's, there's no shortage of, of diversity in this world, which unfortunately we harp on the differences and we have those conversations about others. The one thing that I think is like this ultimate commonality that no matter who you are, there's some way to, to find with individuals, different tribes, different cultures, it's music, right? Like, I'll tell you one of the reasons why I feel this. So I can't hear out of my left ear, right? And I I have a couple of friends that I know that can't hear at all, but music still plays a role in their life. You know, the the vibrations, the, the, the joy that they can see and feel, to me, that speaks volumes, no pun intended, but it speaks volumes in the sense that music is this commonality that just binds us. No matter what we look like, what color we are, whatever it is, where we're from, music is like this central touch point. And uh, so for me, one of my hobbies is I collect musical instruments and I tend to try to learn how to play them regardless if I have any comfort level around this. So I have a room about a mile and a half away from here at my house, which is my music room. And I have close to like 120 different instruments from around this world from 
my travels, from travels from friends and family, um, you know, folk folk instruments that like cost like cents to the dollar in different countries and here would be like, you know, 30, 40 bucks. And uh, to me, that room is also a place of respite because when I go in there, I could just pick up some random thing, be a percussion instrument or a string instrument um, and just lose myself. And, you know, as a father, I'm also in my infancy of trying to understand how to be the best father I could be or parent I could be. Um, giving my children access to that has also been pretty magical to see if they're interested or not in something uh, and just allowing them to appreciate that one commonality that we have. And, you know, another point about this, um, despite the content of protests around this world, there's always music in them. Right? There's always either someone with a djembe, a djembe, there's always somebody with like a, like a, who knows, like a, like a cowbell. Like, there's always some music either with a physical instrument or chanting. And that to me, again, no matter what the content of the protest is or the protesters are against each other, people got to step back and just understand that there's a commonality there. That they're, they're, they are strumming to a beat, like a similar beat, even though it may be different viewpoints. That's that one commonality that brings people together. It, it just it so harkens back to the way you spoke about your work of, you know, not bad uttering and, and sitting with someone, being with people and realizing that a, someone who might be going through a substance abuse episode or, or condition, maybe it's just a different tune, but there's this, you both have beating hearts, you're both human beings, you both can connect. It seems so resonant with that. Um, and I love that 120 instruments. So out of 120, like what's their... Your current favorite, or your uh, I should have weirdest. brought it with me. I, there's two, I would say, and they both happen to be from India. Um, one is called a dhol. It's a d h d h o l. Is how you spell it. And uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen an Indian wedding or been to an Indian wedding, but it's usually like this big drum that's strapped around someone's neck. Uh, it's fairly large, and you play it with two sticks. And obviously, there's a bass side, there's a treble side, but the sound of it. It, it, it obviously being you know, my heritage is from northern India just it just does something to my to 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 my core when I hear that beat and um, so I in medical school went and volunteered in India for a month and beyond the mission to help people my mission was to come home with a dole like I wanted a dr- I wanted that drum and the cool thing is my kids again at nine and, and six they kind of know how to play it which is sick because it's not easy to play the, the, the Punjabi beat per se. But the only reason they know is because they have it there and they had access to it. And I'm loving every second of it. Um, the second one also is a folk instrument from India. Also kind of, uh, but, but there's a lot of similarities. A lot of instruments are very similar around the world, right? Like, um, so this one's called the Tumbi, uh, T-U-M-B-I. I'll send you some pictures if you want. Uh, it's also called the Iktara. And Ik in Punjabi means one. And Tara or Tad means string. So it's a one-string instrument. And at the bottom, it has... It's like a banjo, if you will. Like on the bottom, it has like a drum head. Um, and it has a bridge, like a violin would. And then it has one string that goes up to a peg that you tighten. And uh, if you ever heard that song, like, you know, that, that one song everyone knows from Punjabi MC, like the... Right? Like it... That's that instrument that plays that song. Just so you know, you're listening to Dr. Kapoor play the thumbi 
and the rest of the music you will hear in this episode is him playing an instrument from his collection. So when I was in India, in uh, where was it? It was on Jail Road in Tilaknagar. It's a small, small shop. I just randomly walked into it looking to get a dole. And I asked the guy, what is that, you know? And he's like, oh, it's a tumbi. He pulls it off and he tightens it, like tuning it, and takes one finger and literally starts playing that beat from that song, which, you know, if you're a New Yorker, you know that song. Like, you know, it's like, it's played everywhere. It's like part of our Hot 97 culture. Like, it's there, right? And I, like, and me, some New Yorker kid, you know, who grew up in America, whose parents are Indian, I was just like, oh my God, I need that. And I'm thinking, I'm like, you know, and I'm like, I, I want it. I'm like, I'll take it. And he's like, okay. It's my favorite instrument by far. Um, and I love the sound of it. And it's so, I actually have one in my office at Northwell, sitting behind my desk on the wall, the one I got from India. And on my wall in my music room, I have about 30 of them. Because they're all different. They're all folk instruments. So they're all different designs. Some are made from wood, some from metal, like different like, graphics on it, you know, different pinstriping, different carvings. Uh, so I, I, I bought a bunch. Okay, so should we head back in? Yeah. Right, let's sure. up. I'll put, put this in here. In there? Yeah. All right, you guys decide where you want to sit, where you're comfortable. Actually, yeah. Where do you want? I'm trying to decide if I want to sit in the back again. Yeah, sit in the back. We're joy. Yeah, it's I'm actually a cool it. feeling back there. Ah. All right. Thanks for listening to the Wild Talk podcast, where we speak with leaders, thinkers, researchers, writers, artists, and organizers in natural settings about their work and what they can teach us about venturing into the unknown. This episode of Wild Talk was produced and edited by Matt Dellinger and Jay Erickson. For photos, links, and more about our guests, visit our website at wildtalkpodcast.com. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to rate, review, and share with friends. Know someone who can help us get the word out about the show? Wild Talk is looking to hire a PR intern. If you're interested, send us a note from our website, wildtalkpodcast.com, where you can also see photos from each episode, related links, and more information about our guests. Be well, and we'll see you out there.